This is a Dulahan Productions podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Born on April 7, 1947, was a respected businessman that had a darker side to him that he used to prey on the Indianapolis area and possibly even dumping bodies along I-70 before that. His victims, believed to be dozens of men, were last seen at the local gay bars and were not found till police found them buried in his backyard at his gorgeous estate that is now believed to be haunted because of his actions. Life and murders of Herbert Baumeister. This is Serial Time, a serial killer podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Strickland, and join with me as always is my co-host, the serial bull killer himself, Jason Sparks. Jason, how's it going? Going great, Hunter, and uh, as always, I'm ready to murder some cereal. Hey man, it's never a bad time to murder some cereal, is it? Absolutely not. Hey, it's just good inspiration for what we talk about on this show on a weekly basis. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It is a gift. Is it live cereal again today? You bet you, you bet your sweet bippy it is. Hey, man, you can't go wrong with that. You got the healthy side and you get the sugar side, too. Exactly. Hey, it's all good. Well, let's go ahead and get jumped in talking about Herb. So he was born again, Herbert Baumeister. He was known, he was called by his family as Herb. He was born in the Indianapolis, Indiana area. He was the oldest of four children to Dr. Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister. His father was an anesthesiologist. So it's safe to say that he had a pretty comfortable childhood because I know anesthesiologists, they make pretty good money now obviously back then i don't know how good it was but that's still pretty good money yeah i don't know about you jason what do you think yeah like you said he more than likely you know had uh, a very nice childhood you know we we don't know for certain how his parents were raising him but kind of what we had touched on prior to the episode was there's really no indignation of him having a tough childhood because of his parents yeah, and that's what I was about to say to you. I'm glad you segue into that. There, there's no sign of anything foul going on in his childhood, like nothing along the lines of abuse, whether it's sexually or physically or emotionally. There's no signs of that. But he did start displaying some troubling signs when he entered adolescency, such as playing with dead animals, and he even peed on a teacher's desk one instance. So, Jason, I know we talked about this a couple times, the McDonald's triad which there are three parts to identifying potential psych. Um, I don't know what the best term for is. I'm just going to say it's um, psychotic behavior later on. Mm-hmm. And the three are um, harming uh, innocent creatures such as animals, wetting the bed. And do you, can you remember the third one now? I'm blanking on it. It's arson. Arson. That's the other one. Well, he's already displaying two of them right there. Not necessarily wetting the bed, but he still peed on a teacher's desk. Yeah, he's already showing a um, uh, a abbreviment towards uh, authority. Yeah, it's just kind of showing, like like you, I thought you said a couple of times, it's just kind of a middle finger to authority just by him doing that, just showing that I don't care what you do to me, I'm not going to listen to you kind of attitude. Yeah, and something we've, we've kind of touched on uh, prior to the episode again is maybe it's part of the fact of he didn't get let's say an a on a test and so instead of him 
seeing that as something that he needs to try harder whenever he takes that test home to his doctor father, who more than likely has a very high standard for his children, he gets mm-hmm. scolded for it. And then instead of thinking, oh, I need to study harder, I need to better myself, he's looking at it as someone is out to get me, and therefore I need to get revenge, and so I'm going to urinate on my teacher's desk because this person was the problem. You know, that kind of actually sounds like, you remember our episode about Robert Hansen, how one of his crimes was he actually burned a school bus down as a sign of revenge for that school system, allowing him to get bullied so relentlessly growing up. Maybe this is his way, uh, Herb's way of doing that same act. Yeah, I think there's a lot of commonality there. Yeah, that just popped in my head as soon as you said something like that. I was like, wow, I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. But continue on with him. He, when he entered his teenage years, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Unfortunately, he never received treatment for his diagnosis, even though his behavior was becoming more erratic as he was growing up. It may have been a good thing because since his father was in the medical field, the only treatment for schizophrenia at the time was electroshock therapy, which we know today to be very inhumane. Yeah, more than likely, like you touched on, his his father knows the extent of the treatment that they get and knows more than likely the success rate of said treatment. Because even in local uh, literature, what have you, a lot of times it is believed that someone's mannerisms will change after being electrocuted, even if it's just a simple being electrocuted for trying to change out an outlet in your house there's been several documentation that still state that your mentality changes after that instance and possibly that's what they were going for at the time that it would change your mentality hopefully for the better but it could not definitively be stated of it being on the good side or on the bad side or even working at all Mm -hmm. yeah and I don't know, and I'm not I'm not an expert in this field, but from what I've learned, it just doesn't seem like that treatment was very effective. As we can tell, it was definitely inhumane, but it doesn't seem like it was very effective. So even if they did that to him, who's to say he wouldn't have gone on to what we're about to talk about later on in the episode? It wasn't going to, if maybe it wasn't going to change him anyways. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree that we could not definitively state that this was a missed opportunity because we don't know that for certain. Oh, yeah, we'll never know that, too, because his parents chose not to let him do that. At the same time, I just if I had to give a guess, I would say that it wouldn't have changed anything to begin with. But I am not an expert in the medical field, so don't take my advice for that. Yeah. Uh, he would go on to graduate high school. He enrolled at the University of Indiana in 1965. He only lasted for about a semester there before he dropped out. He would later go back in 1967 after his father convinced him to. Again, same result. He only lasted for about a semester. However, it was not without some merit to it as he would eventually meet his future wife, Juliana Sater, during his uh, second stint in college. It was in 1971 that he would get married to Julie, as she was called by friends and family. But his father had him committed to a mental institution only six months after this, with Julie agreeing that he needed help. So, Jason, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, Julie knew of the issues that Herb had, right? Mm -hmm. And it was no surprise, I have to imagine, of the decision being made to institute him because of the fact that he needs help. He needs some sort of, of guidance to help him get through his issues. But, you know, I would have to say, I'd have to believe good on Julie for sticking beside Herb and hopefully believing that she can make a, a good impact on his life and hopefully change him for the better. But sad to say, we know that that won't hold any weight. Yeah, unfortunately, we we wouldn't be talking about him if it did hold any weight. But it also, I think we have mentioned this too, like just me and you talking about because we talk a little bit about the person before the episode. How come this is his first instance that he's being committed to a mental institution? Not long after he's been married. Not saying that's her fault, that there's some correlation with her, but it just raises questions. Why now? Why not before while he was in his teenage years? becoming older why is it now they're waiting yeah and i think that adds so much to the curiosity of his mental state you know we don't know for certain how his outbreaks are if they're very frequent if they're very violent we we really don't know that information i believe is not very well documented but again it just raises that curiosity of like you said why now yeah, but I also want to highlight uh, to your point though, like good for her that she stuck by him even through this because a lot of people would not be able to handle a situation like that because this is a very major situation, but she stuck with him regardless. So it's pretty admirable in my opinion. Without a doubt. Yeah. Well, after his stay at the mental institution, her would work several different jobs, being remembered for his strong work ethic but he was also remembered for his unsettling behavior at times and his unwavering desire to be recognized for his work. And I just want to highlight that too, Jason, just back to your point about him being in school, possibly not getting good enough grades, forcing him to lash out. Maybe because his father would have such high expectations for him. Maybe that was something he did lack in his childhood growing up was that lack of recognition from his father. And I think you actually may have a counterpoint to that too. Yeah, I, I agree on one side of the coin that he didn't get recognition as a child. Uh, like we, you said, his doctor being a very hard father figure because he is a doctor. He wants his children to not only do well, but to excel. And anything below that is not good enough. Or on the flip side of that, maybe he was showered with recognition. And now that he's gone through academia from a K through 12 aspect and then also university stand, uh, standpoint, he didn't really get that recognition that he so rightfully desired. And more than likely that was some of the reason why he dropped out twice and then taking it into his career, he's working so hard so he can get this recognition, but he's still being seen as kind of an oddball. And whenever he's not getting the recognition that he believes he appropriately deserves, he will lash out accordingly. Yeah, it just it raises several questions. Just wondering why he does that, because like I said, with or my I've said, but with my research, though, it does. There's not much that is said about his childhood. So it is completely up to our interpretation of this. 
Mm-hmm. But I mean, they're just good. They're good points. Just think about like why is he acting the way he's acting still and craving this desire? Who knows what it is? Yeah, um, we can we can pose the question to kind of further our curiosity and and hopefully the curiosity of the viewer as well. Yeah, just make you ask the questions, understanding kind of why we think that this person, the events in this person's life that led them to do the horrific things they did. Absolutely. Well, his first job was at the Indianapolis Star after his father did pull some strings for him as a copy boy. Now, I'm not going to imagine that was too high of a job, but it was still something for him to get started after he did get released from the mental institution. But he never did receive the recognition he so much desired that he ended up leaving there. His next job was at the state's Bureau of Motor Vehicles, where he would stay for several years, even being promoted to program director. Even with all this success, though, he never did quite fit in with his co-workers, being labeled as an oddball, and he eventually got fired after he urinated on a letter that was marked for the governor at the time. And we're just going back to what happened in his uh, school years. He urinated on his teacher's desk there, and now he's urinating on the letter uh, on a letter to the governor. Yeah, it's kind of curious if this is the way he perpetrates him being able to act out to kind of put the middle finger up to the man. And you you think as a child, him doing that and everything, that's just him being a very childish and everything, not knowing how to cope with say failure or say strict discipline. But now that he's essentially grown up now that we're still seeing this type of behavior, makes me think it's not just because he was acting childish it's because of his mental capacity at this point it does raise questions like what if he's lacking in that area of his life or in his psyche what it is because the reason why they were able to trace this instance to him is because there was a similar instance about a few months before that where someone had peed on the manager's desk and that's what led them to believe in the two events connected to him. And he's the reason and he's the one who did it. Yeah, it's got to be extremely hard for the individuals in his workplace to, to even fathom how somebody would be able to do this. You know, sure, you think of wanting to get back at the boss or, or what have you, but to take it to such an extreme, you know, I possibly couldn't fathom it in my current career. Yeah, that's not something that would go over too well if I were to do that in my workplace, considering I do work for family, so I don't know how that would go. Yeah, your parents might have a few things to say. Yeah, it wouldn't be too good. So, Well, after he did lose this job, he began working at a thrift store. Um, and it was This actually is what led him to his next career path, which is one he would keep for the remainder of his life, which was opening up his own thrift store known as Save-A-Lot. Now, it's not the Save-A-Lot that we know as today. It was just a small... He only had about, um, it was just this one store in Indiana, but he did have a loan to start it up. Now, I know, Jason, we talked about this before, like, how crazy would that have been if it was that save a lot that we all know today? Oh, I know. The the notoriety that would follow the save a lot we know would, would be so intense that whenever you would talk about going to a save a lot, Herb Baumeister's name would always get brought up. And honestly, I'm still kind of surprised that it doesn't just because of the fact that his thrift store 
shared a similar name to the corporation we currently know. Yeah, Jason, that's a very interesting point to bring up. Considering his business was very successful, lead them to opening up a second location. They also entered into an agreement with the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis to donate a portion of their profits to that bureau to help out, obviously, with the local children in the area. So that's something that's pretty commendable, in my opinion. I didn't know what your thoughts were about that. Yeah, knowing the end result, it's kind of baffling to think of Herb Baumeister as being someone who's philanthropic. Typically, whenever you think of someone who takes the lives of others, you don't think of, you really don't think that they've done essentially anything good within their, their lifetime. And, and, and I say that in the instance of serial killers and, and murderers and, and such, not, you know, a, a general overview of killing, but just to kind of narrow it down into the, the people that we discuss. Yeah, it's not great or attribute that you would find to someone who is infamously known for killing a bunch of people it's not something you really find in most of the those situations like that so i just it's a pretty interesting thing to think about and see that he did have that at least a little bit in him and maybe there was a point in his life that he was actually trying to change his life and be good and try to help people out considering he knows how his past was maybe this is his time to flip over new leaf with a successful business he's got um a wife now too that he's been with for a while it seems like they're very much in love just seems like at least he is trying to have a normal life as much as he can at this point yeah he's obviously got a lot of struggles that he faces but like you said he's trying to live that normal life he's trying to do everything that he can to be able to do so and it's just sad to say that the end result is not that yeah because, I mean, with all these many years of success in his business, it did lead to Herb and Julie purchasing a very nice estate with 18 acres of land. It also had an indoor swimming pool and stables in Westfield, Indiana. It was known as Fox Hollow Farms. Now, Jason, I know we talked about this before. I mean, an indoor swimming pool? I don't know anybody that's got that, so that's got to be pretty nice. Yeah, he is obviously doing very well for himself to be able to buy an 18 lot farm that also the the house sounds very luxurious, Mm -hmm. but also to have an indoor swimming pool is, is very unheard of. Yeah. It's not typically what an average person would run into on an everyday basis. That's just something I thought was pretty interesting too. Just how successful they have gotten to that. They could afford this very nice place that they can live in now just kind of uh, it looks like from the outside he is just just a successful businessman but we know on the inside that's not what it is portrayed as absolutely and it sounds kind of like i need to get into uh opening up a few thrift stores or something i don't know what i'm doing wrong but <laughs> yeah, i don't know maybe that's a, maybe that's the avenue we need to start taking down towards exactly. going to open up a bunch of thrift stores around here absolutely yeah maybe so because his save a lot stores were known to be well organized and well maintained However, this could not be said about the Fox Hollow Farms as the rooms were known to be very messy. The yard was very unkept as the grass would not be kept or be cut and the flower beds were known to be overgrown with weeds. However, there was one place that would be well kept and well maintained. Jason, what do you think that location was? The pool house. 
Yep, you're exactly right. The pool house was known to be well-stocked. The bar was known to be always have drinks there, and everything was clean. And even Herb would stage throughout the pool house to make it seem as though there was a pool party going on at all times. So, Jason, what do you think about that situation? Yeah, so I think he's keeping his stores very well-maintained, being very uptight with them because he can get positive reinforcement, positive acknowledgement from how clean his stores are. But whenever you go home, you kind of open up the curtain a little bit. You're not getting that because Herb potentially doesn't see that as a place to where he either needs recognition or he knows he will never get the recognition he wants at his house. But the, the pool house is kind of an interesting point of view. I don't know if it's partially due to his mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia, that he has these mannequins dressed up to portray a lavish pool party, or if in his mind he feels he needs practice to be able to throw a lavish pool party, because I imagine he's probably very much in his own head about if he does throw a pool party and it doesn't go well, how that's going to impact him mentally. And so he's, he's essentially practicing and going through the motions to ensure that it will be as lavish as he wants it to be. Uh, I can only get that last point you made, too, because it seems like if he was to throw a pool party and it went horribly wrong, that would devastate him because all that recognition he totally he wanted so badly would be out the door. He would lose all hope and knowing that the people that he invited to his own home to have this great time and he couldn't live up to the expectation, it probably would have devastated him. Absolutely. And another possibility I have to imagine is the possibility that he's been trying to have this lavish pool party, but people still view him as such an oddball. And since he's still within his hometown, that probably a lot of people have gotten wind of what he did as a child and what he did whenever he worked for the state bureau. And so they don't want to associate with him outside of business hours. Yeah, I that makes a lot of sense too because you know i mean your past is hard to outrun and with him still being within the same radius of where he grew up from you know a lot of people still remember what he did from from him peeing on a teacher's desk him peeing on his boss's desk and anything else in between there you know people had to remember that absolutely well it's also around not long after this that his uh, everything started to go wrong for him in his life as both his business and his marriage started to turn sour. Uh, it was also around this time that Julie was known to stay with Herb's mom at her condo on the weekends as she became increasingly frightened of her husband due to his erratic behavior, leaving a strain on their marriage. It was also in this time frame that while they were staying with Herb's mom that uh, Herb would start preying on the local gay men at the gay bars in their area. In June 1994, a private investigator named Virgil Vandegrift received a call from the mother of missing 28-year-old Alan Broussard after he never returned home from visiting the local bar brothers. Not a week after this, he received another phone call from another mother of Roger Goodlett, who was in the same situation as Alan. 
the two women, the mothers of these two men, went went to Virgil as the police were reluctant to help them. Jason, I know we talked about this many times. It just seems like that's an, another pattern with serial killers around this time that unless it was a certain demographic, police weren't viewing them as high priority. Yeah, they're not a high priority unless they are, in essence, a protected class in the eyes of the police. But sad to say, during the time, the only protected class is straight white individuals. So if you are a minority or if you are homosexual, what have you, you are not giving priority over other individuals. No matter how stringent the case might be, most time, most more often than not, law enforcement is going to look into a small cat burglary of a white straight individual versus the murder of a minority or the murder of homosexual. Yeah, and it just seems like around this era of human history, too, this is the time when. And like you said, unless you're a straight white person, you're basically treated as a second class citizen. You're pushed to the side. If there's nothing else going on with anything, then maybe we'll take a look at it. But until then, but unless something else pops up, y'all are getting pushed under a rug. Absolutely. And, and even my example is, is very extreme. But from the research you've done and from everything that I've witnessed from literature or documentary documentaries and even other podcasts you very much get that feeling that like you stated these individuals are seen as second class citizens oh absolutely well both of these men did share similar lifestyles they would be frequent uh goers of these gay bars and it became aware to virgil that both men actually did look shockingly similar to one another after receiving both of these calls, he started going to these local gay bars and distributing the missing person posters for each man to help with the search when he learned that Roger was last seen entering a blue car with Ohio plates. It was also around this time that he got a call from a gay magazine publisher that informed him of several disappearances involving gay men in the area over the last few years. Virgil went to the police with every, all the evidence he had, but they began to drag their feet with this case, showing no priority to it. Again, just highlighting everything we've basically said. They're not treating this as seriously as one might think they would. They're just kind of pushing it off to the side, possibly because they think there's more important things for them to do. Yeah, and to kind of touch on the fact that the men looked similar, so it definitely sounds like Herb has a type. Mm -hmm. And then also the blue car having Ohio tags makes it seem like this is very much premeditated by Herb that instead of having an Indianapolis or an Indiana tag, mm -hmm. he instead has an Ohio tag to potentially cover up his tracks. No, but say you kind of throw people off that are off track trying to think that, oh, this guy has Ohio tags. Maybe he's from Ohio when really he's been living in Indiana this whole time, kind of covering his own like tracks and make sure no one can connect it back to him. Absolutely. So, it is also during his investigation that Virgil had learned about several murders of gay men that had occurred between the mid 1980s and 1990s with their bodies being dumped along interstate 70. And based off this connecting the dots, Virgil started believing that this person that is uh, picking up men from these gay bars and 
this area is also the same man responsible for these murders along Interstate 70. He would eventually get a break in his case that he needed when a man going by the name of Tony Harris made contact with the private investigator about having possibly spent time with the man involved in Roger Goodlett's disappearance. Tony said that he met a man named Brian Smart at one of the local bars. Two men shared a couple of drinks before Smart invited Tony back to where he was staying temporarily on a landscaping project. The two men headed out with Tony not really remembering much of their drive to this estate they were staying at, but he did remember that Brian had Ohio tags and they went to a place with the word farms in it. So you can kind of see here, there's kind of connecting dots right here with everything that's known about Herb and what uh, Virgil has in his investigation right here. So we can kind of already conclude who this Brian Smart is. Yeah, obviously Brian Smart is just a uh, a cover-up that Herb is using. And again, kind of makes me feel as if this is premeditated in another way that Herb will be able to cover up his tracks if other individuals at the bar were to hear the conversation and be able to link it to this individual getting in the blue car that might have led to the murder of Tony. But by using this cover up, it will more than likely not link back to Herb. Yeah. So Jason, would you say so far from what we've learned right now, obviously we're not done. Would you say he's more of an organized killer? To this extent, without a doubt, Herb is is being organized because of how methodical he's being with his killings and the fact of he he obviously has a type. He's going after gay men who, for the most part, also look similar to each other. And just the we don't know at this point, at this juncture, how he's killing these men. But it would be safe to say at this point, I would deem him an organized killer. Well, based off what we're about to talk about right here, this may be his M.O. for how he did kill these men, so we'll get back into it. When the two men got to the estate, they entered the pool house on the property when Brian offered Tony a drink, to which he denied. They started then having conversations. One thing led to another with Brian asking Tony if he had ever been erotically asphyxiated. Tony asked, or Brian asked Tony to choke him for sexual pleasure with a hose and when he was done, if he could do it to him as well, to which Tony agreed. When it became time for Tony to be erotically asphyxiated, Brian grabbed the hose and started to choke him when it became obvious to Tony that he was not letting up. Tony then, after this, pretended to be passed out from this a little for a little while in order to get Brian to stop choking him. He opened his eyes eventually after this to Brian's horror as the details of what happened after this were not fully under are known because all that's known is that Tony did manage to escape with his life. So Jason, what are your thoughts about that? So from the get go, it's, it's dangerous for Tony to have gotten in this individual Brian's car to go back to his place after having just met him. That's, that's a very dangerous act. But to decline a drink makes me believe that Tony is being cautious because he doesn't know for certain what is in this drink. He doesn't know for certain what Brian's intentions are. But then I feel like Tony's throwing caution to the wind whenever he is asked if he wants to be erotically asphyxiated. 
And maybe Tony believes, since he's being able to do it to Brian first, that he's gaining some level of trust and he will, you know, not have to pay any sort of consequences for this act. But as we know, he does because Brian essentially seems to try and kill him. But even still, erotically asphyxiating it is such a dangerous sex act to commit. And especially to commit it with a person you had just met after seemingly being cautious towards being given a drink. It kind of raises some questions, but I am glad that Tony was able to think on the fly instead of continuing to panic. He acted as if he passed out and more than likely that saved his life and potentially the lives of others. I did want to highlight that though, like that it was very smart of him to fake this, that him being passed out because I truly believe he had he not done that, he would have been another one of his victims. But I do want to highlight again, your point about why he would refuse to drink, but then agree to do this act that is potentially very dangerous. The only thing I could think of was that he had never done it before. And it, brought a curiosity within him that he's like, you know what, maybe it's worth it. But that curiosity could have meant him, his life being over. Yeah. It's, it's scary to think about, you know, like you said, is his curiosity very easily could have got the better of him. Um, and he almost paid the price for that. Yeah, he definitely almost did. Well, Tony would not see Brian though, again, for another year when they both ended up running to each other at another local gay bar. This time, he did manage to get the license plate number from uh, from Brian's car. He gave this in- information to a detective that Virgil had recommended to him, named Mary Wilson, that he uh, that uh, Virgil told Tony about because she knew that she would be serious about what was going on in this area that the police seemed to be pushing off to the side. This was the break they needed, as when she ran the plates, they discovered that the vehicle belonged to one Herbert Baumeister. Jason, I know that's very shocking to you. I know you probably weren't expecting that. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Yeah, I know. I just completely blew my mind when I researched that, too. <laughs> Jeez. Well, Wilson did confront uh, Herbert after she learned who the vehicle was registered to, confronting him at his thrift store after letting him know that he would become a suspect in multiple disappearances, possibly even homicides, and asked to search his home, to which he refused. When this failed, the detective went to Herb's wife, Julie, to seek permission to search their home after she informed her that her husband was a suspected serial killer. Though this revelation shocked Julie, she would also refuse her permission to search their home. Jason, I wanted to give your opinion of what you, why you think Julie would say no to this. Yeah, so to kind of backtrack to get to that point... I have to imagine that Brian, a.k.a. Herb, was outraged by Tony being able to get away, was probably outraged in running into Tony again, seeing him, seeing him alive and well, and then was probably even more outraged by learning he's in suspicion for the acts he has committed up to this point. And so I have to imagine within this year's time frame, it has been even more difficult than it had been previously for Julie. And so possibly she's saying no because she already knows how bad it's getting currently. 
and that allowing them to do so would just even heighten his outbreaks and his is the trauma he's already endured or potentially julie knows that herb is a serial killer and wants to protect her husband you know she's been through so much with him and it's endeared so much through their relationship and she feels that the only way that she can still continue to help Herb is by attempting to cover up his killings. And another thing, too, just to add to that last point you made, too, I haven't mentioned this yet because they're not really highlighted very much within his case, but he does have two children, too. They, their union did produce two children. What I think maybe, too, is that on top of her protecting her husband, maybe she's trying to protect those kids from seeing anything that she does not want them to see. Because I can imagine it's probably highly traumatic for those two children to not only get this revelation that their dad's a possible serial killer, but to have police search their home, it's probably not a good outcome for them. Absolutely. Like, I would be horrified wholeheartedly if I were to discover that a friend, not even a close friend, but just a friend, was a serial killer i could not imagine if my significant other or my father was a serial killer how detrimental that would be to you mentally and emotionally yeah it's gotta be something that would completely throw you through a loop for the rest of your life it'd be hard to overcome that at any point absolutely well, since that Detective Wilson couldn't get the cooperation of either one of the Baumeisters, she went to officials of the Hamilton County, which was uh, the Westfield and in Indianapolis area county, to obtain a search warrant. They, however, they would deny it because they said there was a lack of evidence. With all the turmoil going on, Julie did eventually file for divorce against Herb after he suffered an emotional breakdown. That led to them filing for bankruptcy and losing their contract to donate the portions of their profits to the Children's Bureau. So to highlight your point about him being outraged about all this revelation coming about him, you could definitely see right here that it's taking a toll on him, leading to all this stuff to Julie eventually filing for divorce against him. Yeah, everything he's he's worked for, he's essentially losing it all. Oh, yeah. He's probably going in full meltdown mo now because he's probably afraid that he's about to get caught and uh, be exposed for what he's done yeah and and i don't want to say that and come across as if i feel bad for this individual because oh, yeah. no, I, of course not. i i don't but you can understand how taxing this is to him already on top of the mental illnesses he already suffers from yeah. Oh, we just want to get into see the minds of these people. We definitely don't sympathize with them because they can't really sympathize with someone who does some pretty horrific things that we talked about. No, absolutely not. We we sympathize for their victims, but the individual themselves, not at all. Yeah, definitely. Well, after this, um, with her filing for divorce, Julie did go back to Detective Wilson and gave her permission to search the property. And also, this was around this time during the divorce process that Julie remembered an instance when the eldest of her children had found a human skull a couple years back. When she told Herb about this, he played it off as that it belonged to his dad for research purposes and he decided to bury it in the backyard. I just want to stop right there and say that's a major red flag. But at the same time, I can't really say anything 
it's just I don't know how she didn't think that that was something that is a major coincidence right there. Yeah, I think in that point, she's really just wanting to to try and save their marriage, try and, you know, uh, convince herself that her husband isn't a monster. And to, again, like we kind of touched on to to save face for her children on who the man their father is. That's the only thing I could think of, because if she'd gone back back then with all that, who knows what could have happened? Because obviously her kids were significantly younger at that point. Who knows what it would have done? But either way, it did lead her to help with her decision to give Detective Wilson permission to search their property. And when they did, they did find something truly horrific. When they got when they excavated the property, they did find the remains of eleven victims and were able to identify four of them. One of them was Roger Goodlett. After this discovery, the police issued a warrant for Herb's arrest. Before police were able to arrest Herb, he fled to, to out of the country to Ontario, Canada, and it was at the Pinery Pro- Provincial Park that Herb would commit suicide by shooting himself in the head. A suicide note was found next to him that was three pages long. He gave his reason for killing himself as his marriage was failing as well as his business. Unfortunately, though, he never mentioned anywhere in those three pages that he had committed any types of murder. So, Jason, we'll stop right there and just get your thoughts about that because it kind of went zero to 100 really quick on us because it went from him searching the property, finding all those bodies, trying to arrest them, and then he committed suicide. Yeah, more than likely, Herb was not proud of the heinous things that he did. But also, Herb was also probably in the similar mindset of his wife of trying to to save face for himself, but also for his family to state that he took his own life because of the the strain he had for his failing business and the strain he had for his divorce instead of for the the murders of uh, essentially a confirmed 11 individuals you know it, it it raises question it does make me think that herb is is not narcissistic because i felt as if he was he would have wrote out in clear detail you know wanting essentially to get praise for what he had done. Uh, but it goes back to the fact that I believe that his actions was, were not something he was proud of. Oh no, because we see most serial kill- killers that are narcissistic, narcissistic and proud of what they did. They wouldn't kill themselves. They would want everybody to know exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. He would have rather take his own life than have to be confronted with the realization of what he did. And, it just shows right there by his actions. Yep. Well, since he did die before they could arrest him and before they could press any charges against him, he is the only suspect that is connected to these murders. And it would be safe for us to assume that he is the killer considering these bodies were found in his backyard. Unless something happened and someone else did this and managed to bury these bodies in his backyard. Jason, do you disagree with that point? Yeah, it seems very much so that Herb is not really close to anybody except for his own family. 
and even it feels as if the members of his direct family are a little bit estranged at times because of the difficulties they had during their marriage. So I could not imagine that there was someone else who was along with Herb to prey on these individuals. Uh, yeah, I think he was a lone gunman in this instance. He was the only one acting upon it. And it just seems like the evidence is too damning to say that it would be anybody else other than him. I agree wholeheartedly. And it was after his death also that the murders that we were talking about along Interstate 70 were connected to him as well, with him again being the only suspect for those uh, murders as well. Julia was able to help investigators piece together those murders along the interstate with receipts and other items to show that he was in the area around the time the murders did take place. However, they could not find any physical evidence linking him to these bodies. He was later connected also to a murder in 1983 of Michael Riley, who was found semi-nude in a river after being strangled to death, which is how all of his victims had perished with authorities now having remains to determine this. So you can kind of see there too, his methodology of uh, killing these men was strangulation, possibly with a hose like he tried to do with Tony. Mm -hmm. So his life and suspected murders were, had been extensively covered after his death with networks such as True TV, Discovery, and Sci-Fi all covering all of his instances. The site of his home, Fox Hollow Farms, is also said to be haunted since the discovery of these bodies by owners of the house since Herb, uh, since Herb has been there, with even Ghost Adventures filming an episode at this location. Now, I just wanted to bring that up, Jason, because you have another podcast, don't you? I do. Uh, it's called Alcoholic Anomalies, as you stated, is another Doolahan Productions podcast um, where we do investigate the things that go bump in the night. And I would be interested in the future to cover an episode on the house that her Baumeister called home. And you even got good source material for, source material for that as Ghost Adventures covered them. I know you do like that show, so maybe you can watch their episode on it. We, uh, Bobby, my co-host and I definitely, definitely do love that show. And, uh, but we also love to hate that show. Nothing, nothing <laughs> against them whatsoever, but, uh, I, I do still have to give them a lot of credence because they are part of the reason why we decided to get this thing started, get that podcast started. Oh yeah. You gotta give credit where credit is due, but also I know what you mean. Sometimes you gotta question with it, what they're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Well, obviously, since her did uh, die prematurely before they could take him to trial or anything for this, there's no confessions to this, nothing whatsoever to go about this. So this is our first guy that we've covered that has not been definitively connected to, to these events since he did die so early. Well, it, Jason, unless you got something else you want to prove to say, I mean, would you say he's responsible for, I think at this point, it's 20, 21 murders? Yeah, I think that would be safe to say that he is directly linked to these murders. And like you said, even though he passed on before he could be rightfully uh, convicted of these murders, I think it's, like I said, safe to say that, yes, her Baumeister is the reason. Yeah, well, unfortunately, his the secrets of what truly happened to these men were taken with him to his grave, so... Well, Jason, that's everything I got on her Baumeister. You got anything else you want to add about this? Yeah, so just kind of my closing thoughts. You know, I, I still believe her Baumeister is an organized killer because of 
he mainly preyed on homosexual men. He was methodical with his car, having the Ohio tag, also using a, an alias uh, when introducing himself to these men, and then also killing through strangulation. It seemed like he was very clear-cut, didn't change it up. But it, it kind of raises some questions, some curiosity. If Herb did this as a way to kind of experiment with his own sexuality, kind of with the instance with Tony, or if this was his way of placing blame for the failures in his life. And so he blamed homosexual men for everything that had been going wrong. And in, instead of, you know, looking to himself for what he can fix, what he can do better, he, he just wants to place blame because something is preventing him to get the acknowledgement that he believes he so rightfully deserves. And so he's lashing out. I can see both points that would make both of them would make sense. If I had to give you my definitive guess, I would actually say the former just because mm. it seems like based off his experiences with them that he might have been a closeted homosexual at the same time, though, he obviously had a lot going on within his mind that we have no idea truly what was doing it that led him to committing these heinous acts. But if I had to give my guess, I think he was probably a closeted homosexual and he was probably ashamed of it as well. Yeah, so. I, uh, I, I'm prone to, you know, agree on that instance. Yeah, so, well, Jason, that's all we got for today. I appreciate you taking this journey with me and talking about the life and the murders of her Baumeister. I know it's never pleasant doing this, but at least we can at least bring to light some of these things so that way we can educate some people and hopefully that this would never happen again. Absolutely. And uh, with that being said, I do want to touch on something before I get to our closer. Mm -hmm. So if you or a loved one are struggling with suicide or suicidal tendency, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Help is available 24-7. But to go ahead and close out this episode, Hunter, thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Herb Baumeister episode of Serial Time, a serial killer podcast. If you like this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As a disclaimer, no serial was harmed in the making of this episode, and we hope to see you next time. <laughs>